This passage is coming from Zechariah 14, verses 10 through 21. And on that day, there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. Thank you, Diane. Um, my name is Harrison. I'm the one of the, or the, the pastor here of Simulation and Discipleship. Um, and uh, if I haven't met you yet, I'd love to meet you um, and grab coffee with you if you're new with us. Um, we've been going through a series on images of heaven. Um, and today we're looking at this image that Zechariah gets at the end of um, that book, Zechariah 14. Um, Don Quixote uh, is, uh, before we dive in, let me talk about Don Quixote for a second. Uh, considered the first modern novel um, written in the 17th century in Spanish. Uh, one of the most influential and most translated books in all of history. Uh, it tells the story of Alonzo Quixano, a man who is well-read in classic Arthurian knight literature decides that he wants to become a knight. Uh, he wants to restore chivalry to the realm, become famous, right the wrongs of the world with the ways of the famous knights of old. He renames himself uh, Don Quixote de la Mancha and picks a somewhat random female of his town to love with an undying love. Uh, he gets a horse and a suit of armor and he starts parading around doing knightly things. Uh, if you haven't read Don Quixote, uh, he's kind of the foundation of a lot of modern characters that, we, that are idealistic, like uh, Nacho Libre, um, Three Musketeers, and um, Michael Scott from The Office, I think, finds his source in Don Quixote. But the thing is, uh, the world from Don Quixote's books is not the one that he encounters around him. Knights and castles and enchantments don't really exist anymore. Uh, the book is full of his horrendous mistakes, like he gets injured by windmills that he thinks are giants. Uh, he gets attacked by innocent traveling monks who he thinks are enchanters. And uh, he's basically seen from the outside as a fool, thinking that he's doing good, but he's really on the sidelines as a troublemaker, hurting more than helping people. And the term uh, quixotic comes from this book. It's a rash idealism without regard for any real-world practicality. Um, Don Quixote has a high calling, but his life doesn't live up to it, and his impact is menial at best. We've been focusing this year on our call as Christians to cultivate shalom in this world, to bring about the kingdom of heaven, life as it was meant to be, but in your actual life, in your actual efforts to cultivate shalom, I wonder, do you sometimes feel how Don Quixote might have felt? Um, you have a book that gives you a high calling to transform your community and your culture and your families and your workplaces into heaven itself. But your actual uh, life doesn't quite play out like that way, does it? You don't speak sometimes when you should speak. You don't act when you should act. Or you do try to act and you fail. You sin and your own folly gets in your way. On top of that, even if you were perfect in your shalom cultivation, you face opposition from the world around you that doesn't care about your concept of shalom at all. 
So because of your own blunders and the world's lack of interest, you might feel mostly on the sidelines, uh, dismissed with menial impact. You think here in church all these people around you are really cultivating shalom and you're the only one who's not quite able to, to do it. So in Advent, uh, we're focusing on biblical images of heaven to remind us of the reality that uh, for all of us, not just some, all of us, as we go about this work, uh, we fall short. Cultivation is a gardening term, and the Bible is clear that your earthly shalom garden before Christ comes back is going to have diseased plants in it. There's going to be bug infestations. There's going to be frost and snow that keeps us and our families and our friends and our schools and our workplaces from reaching the true shalom fully and finally. They won't get there. This doesn't mean that Jesus and his people and his kingdom don't have massive impacts on this world. We have already. Uh, the church will keep transforming this world. But sometimes you feel that and see it, and a lot of times you don't. And even on the days with the biggest impact, there's a residual incompleteness. We're longing for, awaiting perfection, which will come when the true Prince of Shalom returns. So I chose this Zechariah passage that you have in your bulletins uh, because no one knew viscerally this incompleteness quite like the Israelites in Zechariah's time. So Israel in the Old Testament had a high calling from God. They were supposed to set up a civilization, a city on a hill that followed God's law to be a beacon to the rest of the world. Their influence was supposed to lead the world to come to know God and to worship him again. Yet due to their own sin, uh, due to them becoming more like the rest of the world, the other nations, Rather than actually changing them, uh, they spent a significant period in exile as punishment. And then in Zechariah's time, they had just gotten back to their own uh, land uh, to start their city on a hill again, but they were still ruled by other nations, and they didn't even have a temple where God could come and dwell with them. They had laid the foundation but never finished it. So they called their day the day of small things. That's what they called their time, in which God was absent from them. They seemed to have no impact. Any shalom cultivation felt useless. In fact, they felt useless as God's people. So what does God give to them here in Zechariah to motivate them to keep going? And what might he give to us in our time who may feel this way as Christianity declines in western parts of the world? Countless stories we see of Christian leaders failing. Much of the American church dividing over politics recently or going after heresies like the prosperity gospel. Here's what God gives to them and to us. It's this last vision Zechariah has. In the, the, it's in this context uh, of a greater vision of God restoring his rightful kingship over the earth. He will one day come and restore his kingship. It's in this vision, God draws all the nations to himself. All the nations come to Israel, sitting on a hill to worship. They keep the way of the Lord. They bring the best of their spoils with them to offer to God. In this vision... Um, the calling of God's people is finally being fulfilled. The world coming to know God through the witness of his people. And this glorious vision in Zechariah 14 ends with this passage today. This is the end of Zechariah. In which God shows Zechariah two final truths of the kingdom of heaven for us to look forward to and to work towards. So when God comes to restore his kingship, first is the world will be ritually holy. And second, we ourselves will be practically holy. Holy in practice. The world will be ritually holy and we ourselves will be practically holy. I'm going to explain what those mean in a minute. 
But it's this holiness that motivates us to continue our work knowing that we will succeed in our task. Not based on us, but based on the coming Prince of Shalom, Jesus. So before we dive into that vision, let me uh, pause and pray for us. Father, would you um, be with us this morning, especially those of us this Advent season who are feeling the weight of the incompleteness in our own lives and in our little square inches of our world around us. Uh, We've tried all year to cultivate shalom, and we've asked people to do a task that's actually um, this side of heaven impossible. Uh, We're feeling that incompleteness now, Lord, and so I pray would you meet us and motivate us to keep going. Um, Lord, would you give us a vision of what's coming what's here now and what's coming that we can hold on to and carry with us into our weeks this week. And uh, be with us, Lord, as we look through this and give us your words this morning. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So first we're going to look at the, the world will be ritually holy. So look at uh, in, your, in your bulletins at verse 20 here. Um, and on that day there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. What, is, what does this mean? What is he talking about? Uh, when Zechariah says holiness, um, you might think of kind of a cold, strict, boring life. Uh, holiness in the Bible is not like that at all. It's not boring. It's not cold. Um, it literally means set apart from the rest, something that's distinct and special. And God is described as holy first and foremost. He's set apart from us. He's distinct and special from us because of two things, because of his overwhelming glory and because of his overwhelming moral purity. God's set apart for those two reasons, his glory and his moral purity. He should be set apart. Uh, And Jim described uh, two weeks ago, if you were with us, he had a sermon on the tabernacle. Uh, For a God of this magnitude of purity and glory to dwell with the sinful, unglorious people of Israel, there needed to be a ton of practices and structures in place so that God in his holiness did not utterly consume all these people. God's presence in the Old Testament was a terrifying tornado that sat in the tabernacle and in the temple. And all the rules surrounding those two structures that you read about, the the building, the priests, the sacrifices, were there to protect the people to allow for this divine dwelling to actually take place. And Jim described uh, layers more and more of ritual holiness the closer you got to where God was actually dwelling. And the innermost place was the top level of ritual holiness, the holy of holies, where God himself was. Now, one particularly close item in all of this were the high priest's garments, which uh, one man wore to go into that Holy of Holies once a year. Uh, He's the only person in Israel to do so. Israel referred to the clothes he's supposed to wear going in there as the holy garments, which included uh, his hat, the high priest's turban with a little gold plate that said, Holy to the Lord. And in Zechariah's vision here, he sees random bells on random horses in Israel, normally level zero holiness, insignificant, with the same engraving as the high priest's turban, meaning they carry the same level of ritual holiness as what goes into the Holy of Holies. So if if you're a priest like Zechariah, this would have been very shocking to hear. Zechariah's a priest. He deals with these. He's seen this hat. He's dealt with carefulness and reverence and fear around the Holy of Holies and that hat his whole life. And now you got bells on horses in Israel with the same level of holiness as that hat. This is going to mess up his whole system. And then verse 20, uh, the pots in the houses of the Lord shall be as bowls before the altar. So the pots uh, were what were used by worshipers to to cook uh, one of the sacrificial offerings in the outer court, 
which were important pots, you know, maybe level two holiness in the outer parts of the court, uh, but they weren't the bowls next to the altar in the Holy of Holies, level 22 holiness, if we're going to assign a value to it. Um, that's Harrison's value. Uh, used to, these bowls were used to sprinkle blood on the altar. Um, he, Zechariah Bill, you can't put those pots in there with those bowls. That's not gonna. That's not gonna work out. Um, and then verse twenty-one would would especially blow his mind. Um, and every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. So now he's saying, wait a second. Everyone's pots from home who are used for who knows what. Uh, love, negative 12 holiness, all right? The, your pots at home, not, not good to bring into the temple, are going to be used to cook the sacrifices in. They will be holy to the Lord. And also, how many people are going to be coming in there if we're going to need all these, these bowls from everyone's houses coming in? Zechariah's disruptive vision is this, is that when God comes as king, Every menial pot and bell in Israel will become as ritually holy as the high priest's garments in the Holy of Holies. When God comes as king, everything is going to become ritually holy. This means before this vision takes place, the temple is God's sanctuary. But after it takes place, the world is going to be God's sanctuary. In uh, seminary, I had a class on Leviticus in which the professor encouraged us as extra credit to live Levitically for one week. Uh, This is a week in which you needed to follow all the ritual holiness laws in the Old Testament, including uh, not wearing polyester, which, by the way, is most of your clothes and underwear is uh, polyester, so you got to figure out what to do about that. Um, Dietary laws like not eating pork or shellfish, no trimming your beard, isolating after certain unclean events took place, uh, there were some that were more dedicated, uh, that tried to, some students that tried to recreate the temple with all the layers of holiness of objects, bowls, pots, garments, altar. Uh, the professor told stories, as we did this, of the shift that takes place in students over time while following these laws. Especially in the way they felt about all of the, the objects, the clothing, the places, after doing everything carefully and intentionally for the Lord. And one main takeaway that we had is that, that uh, they would start treating all of the specific objects and activities with much greater weightiness and carefulness, with a much greater sense of holiness. And this led all of the students to become more aware of the weight of God's presence in their lives. Now this was after a week of doing this, but can you imagine if you were a priest like Zechariah who had followed this law your whole life? and treated certain areas and objects as way holier than everything else, and you see in a vision that your whole city and country will be transformed into this area that normally only the high priest can go into, God's presence will be here, there, everywhere with the same force and power as the innermost court of the temple. He would have been disrupted uh, with wonder, excitement, confusion, and fear. How is this going to happen? And the the craziest thing about this vision, uh, it's a vision of the kingdom of heaven. And there's a true sense in which the time Zechariah is envisioning for the Christian is right now. There's a true sense in which the time Zechariah is envisioning for you and me as Christians is right now. You live in a time when God has come as king. And when he did, uh, Jesus came with such overwhelming holiness That after his once for all perfect sacrifice on your behalf, the temple curtain separating that holy place from the rest of the temple was torn in two. 
is no longer needed that curtain for the people of God. This was because Jesus created a way for God to dwell with us with the same power and weight as that temple, without the need for the laws. In other words, Jesus gave you a permanent way in there. He made us ritually holy. Some of us uh, hear this and wrongly assume this means nothing is holy like the temple anymore. We don't have to worry about that, thankfully. But actually, it means just the opposite. The New Testament says, for Christians, your body has become the temple. Jesus made it so that we carry God's actual presence with the same weight and power, which means as you sit in your chair, you sit right now in the Holy of Holies. So look at your, your hands for a second. Look at your legs, your feet. These are set apart by God, the same way the Holy of Holies was now that he's come as king. This didn't lead the New Testament writers to say, well, that doesn't matter anymore. Uh, it struck them with wonder, excitement, fear, trepidation. Paul warns in Corinthians, you've got to be careful what you do with your bodies. It's the Holy of Holies. There's a true sense in which Zechariah's vision, the time he's envisioning is right now for the Christian. The Holy of Holies is expanded to now include your body. And at Christmas, we remember that God's come as king already and changed everything. And one of the biggest things he changed is our ability to be in God's very presence. That's what peace on earth, peace with God, cleansing from our sin, Emmanuel, God with us. That's what we're singing about today. He's with us in a new, more powerful way. There's also a very real sense in which you go about your life and you don't feel this. You don't experience this presence. His presence is there, but it's, it's hidden. It comes and goes from your mind's eye as you go about your day. As my, my daughter Walden asks, she goes, but I don't see Jesus. Where is he? There's a real sense in which the day Zechariah is speaking of is in the future, in which our experience of this presence will change drastically. It'll be full and permanent, and we will actually see and touch Jesus. Now, on that day, we won't just be the Holy of Holies, but the world will be transformed into a ritually holy, the Holy of Holies place where God himself will dwell with us far more so than today. And this is the not yet part of this vision that we're going to look at more in detail next week. Actually, in Revelation, there's a picture of the Holy of Holies the size of half the United States coming down. Um, that's the sermon for next week. Uh, but now we're in this already not yet era of the church where we, are, uh, have, we have the Holy of Holies hidden in our body. And we are called to cultivate shalom from that place, but in a world that's not yet the Holy of Holies. And here's why God gives Israel this vision of, of our day um, and a day that's coming uh, during their day of small things. Uh, which we can actually enjoy the benefits of this vision far more than they could because Jesus has already come. But here's why he gives it to us. It gives it to them and to us is that remembering God's presence with you and leaning on that, collapsing into his presence is the most important thing you can do for persevering in your shalom cultivation. Remembering God's presence with you, leaning on that presence is the most important thing you can do for your shalom cultivation. Let me explain with a story of a, a monk named Brother Lawrence in the 17th century. 
I might have talked about Brother Lawrence in here before, but I'm going to talk about him again. Um, Brother Lawrence was a dishwasher in a monastery in France. Uh, one of his disciples interviewed him and wrote a book called The Practice of the Presence of God. Uh, Brother Lawrence had developed a habit of treating every object, person, and action in his life as holy to the Lord. The book says that he would uh, do dishes or any task that included picking up a piece of straw off the ground with an awareness of God's presence with him, with a joy in God's presence, with intentional prayer in his mind. He would do the task well as also for the love and glory of God. The interviewer said of Brother Lawrence, uh, when the appointed times of prayer in the monastery were passed, Brother Lawrence found no difference because he still continued with God, praising and blessing him with all his might so that he passed his life in continual joy. He says, the t- Brother Lawrence says, the times of business does not with me differ from the times of prayer in the noise and clatter of my kitchen as he's washing his dishes. Several persons are at the same time calling for different things. I possess God in his great tranquility as if I were upon my knees at the blessed sacrament. Talking about communion. Brother Lawrence knew and cultivated that because of Jesus, he did life in the holy of holies. Meaning God was his presence with him and us the same at work, at prayer, taking communion, picking up a leaf off the ground. This awareness for him totally changed how he did each task. He didn't get weary doing the dishes every single night because he was with the Lord. He was doing those tasks for the Lord. And so he did them really well, such that others wrote a book about him that we're still reading 300 years later. So my first challenge to you this Christmas season coming from this passage is that later today or tomorrow as you go about your job, as you drive, as you eat lunch, as you pick up your own leaves, if you haven't done that yet, as you go Christmas shopping, do this. Say to the Lord in your head, or out loud, I offer this task to you. Let me, God, let me do these dishes for you. Give me your strength to do this. And then talk to God as you go about your task. God, thank you for all these dishes. Thank you for the soap, for the running water, for the people who ate from them. Talk to him about your day. Hard things, good things. And then when you end your task, God, thank you for the opportunity to serve you in this way. Thank you for cleanliness, for using me to bring some shalom right here in my house. Thanks for being with me in it. This is what it looks like to cultivate an awareness of what Zechariah envisioned, that you are the Holy of Holies with the Lord now in this kitchen. Jesus died so that you could have that conversation with the Lord in your kitchen. Can you imagine how 250 people who have mastered this practice of God's presence would change our community in Greensboro? We could actually be that together as a church. So God's presence and mainly our awareness of God's presence changes how we do these things. Changes how you engage in interruptions of your tasks too. How you engage with other people around you in the midst of your task. It grows your holiness. Now, all of this doesn't take away the importance and special presence of God at church here. Uh, when we take communion during a baptism, um, it doesn't take away God's special presence there, but it actually adds it to the other parts of your life. And one day, uh, the world will have the same ritual holiness as your body does now, and you will get to see God clearly. 
So this is his uh, first vision. It's a vision of the world being ritually holy uh, and us becoming ritually holy. Uh, The second vision Zechariah has is that we ourselves will be practically holy. And this is just the short statement he ends with here in verse 21. uh, And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. So uh, at this time in Israel's history, there were she- the shepherds, uh, these are not actual um, shepherds of sheep, sheep shepherds. These are, he's referring to uh, people shepherds, the, the leaders of Israel. Um, they were supposed to lead the people to God, but at his time they had actually used worship, particularly of idols, as a means of acquiring their own excess, excessive riches uh, from the people of Israel. So these are similar to many modern day pastors you might read about in the news today. Uh, people's leaders abused their power. They led people away from God. And they did so primarily to get filthy rich off of the people and off of the, the people's ties. So God says in Zechariah, he says, my anger is hot against the shepherds. And in this final vision, uh, it says that there shall no longer be a traitor, someone trying to make money, in the house of the Lord. And this is symbolic of those evil leaders being removed. The temple will be a place of true worship again. Even more so, uh, like the bells of the horses was a specific example that pointed to a much greater reality of a lot of different things. Um, This is doing the same thing. Uh, Not just the leaders, but everyone in God's kingdom would not just be declared ritually holy, but they would actually be holy in terms of their practice, their perfect conformity to God and to his commands. This is a vision of practical holiness. This is obviously the, the not yet part of the vision for us as well. This is not true in our time, as you well know from your life. Uh, we are ritually holy in Christ, but are far from being practically holy. In Advent, uh, we focus on the fact that your life is not what you want it to be. There are a lot of things you've done this past week that you're ashamed of. A lot of things that you haven't done this past week that you should have done. You're ashamed of those things too. And your list of things that you're ashamed of is not really that complete. Uh, There's so much sin and the most important sin that you commit daily that you're not even aware of right now. So you're ashamed of the fact that you don't even know the bad things you're doing (laughs) for not knowing that you should be doing. Now we have a a place to take that shame uh, to Jesus and his cross. He takes it away. But then an hour later, we sin again. Israel and Zechariah's time knew what this constant cycle feels like. Their own heinous sins led them to exile. They can't even get it together enough to rebuild the temple more than just the foundation. And so hearing this vision of practical holiness, uh, for them and for us, uh, we're all wondering, how can this be when I failed over and over and over again to be holy? How will I actually become holy one day? Zechariah has an an answer to this in his book. um, And I'm going to explain it to you with one of the best martial arts films that we have today. It's known as uh, Yip Man. Yip Man? Anybody seen it? It's spelled I-P Man, but Yip Man is how you pronounce it. Um, It's a Chinese martial arts film about the life of the guy who trained Bruce Lee. Uh, His name's Yip Man. Um, uh, Bruce Lee is the most famous martial artist in films. And the movie is set uh, during the occupation of China by Japan in World War II. China at this time was extremely poor, taken advantage of. And there's one scene where a gang of martial artists, bad guys, 
uh, invade a Chinese factory and demand payment from the men and women who work there upon threat of being beaten. And these poor workers, this factory, submit, uh, and they still get beaten up in the process. And the factory owner uh, goes to Yip Man, who is the most skilled martial artist in the land, and asks him to train the factory workers for when this gang comes back. And so that's what Yip Man does. There's all these Rocky-esque montages of the training, practicing forms as they're working. And when the gang comes back to get more money from them, uh, they find the factory very different. Hundreds of workers roll up their sleeves, jump into poses, are ready to duel this, this martial artist gang. But here's the thing, you realize it's still not enough. They didn't have enough time to train. And it seems like they're about to get beaten, they're about to lose, and then Yip Man himself steps out of the shadows and knocks down this factory beam, a pretty sizable beam, and just starts getting after it. Um, And uh, they win the fight. So Israel at the time was like the factory workers after the first invasion. They're outgunned, disheartened. Zechariah is saying, there's a yip man. He says, there's a righteous branch of David, a future king in the line of David that would both train his people in holiness, but also step in himself and bring about practical holiness for all of Israel, for his people. And then remember, uh, 500 years later, Jesus of Nazareth goes up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. He sees hundreds of thousands of traders in the temple courts selling oxen and sheep and pigeons for sacrifices. This is 500 years after Zechariah. Um, There's still leaders trying to make money off of people and defiling temple worship as a result. And it says of Jesus then when he sees this, zeal for God's house consumed him. And he made a whip of cords. And he hit people and animals, throwing over tables, pouring out money bags, until every last one of them, which would have been hundreds of thousands of people, were cleared out of this massive area. He says, do not make my father's house a house of trade. The people would have been chilled to the bone at this sign and reminded of Zechariah's vision and of the righteous branch of David. There would no longer be a traitor in the house of God. Jesus is saying, I will ensure it. This is how Zechariah's vision becomes a reality. Jesus is through me. That's what that sign means. And so Jesus, just like in Yip Man, uh, like in the Gospels, is here to train you as his disciple. His presence and his words and his Holy Spirit can actually teach you how to be holy. But we remember in Advent that it won't be enough. Sin is still present with us. But one day, he will step out of the shadows, and he will bring about this holiness for you himself. He will drive sin out of the temple of your body the same way he did that physical temple in Israel. So I wonder today, what do you long for him to drive out of you, or out of your family, or your community, or your own heart? These images of heaven that we're looking at invite you to imagine heaven. And so do that with me here for a minute. Imagine with me your deepest longings for rightness and goodness and beauty one day being met. Imagine your families at Christmas being intimately connected through genuine love. Your family gatherings being fun and deep and enjoyable 
with folly and resentment and blame far away. Imagine your workplace one day functioning like a, a godly monastery, productive, organized, worshipful, with greed and filthy talk and selfish practices far away. Imagine your TV with uh, beauty and goodness on display, overdone, promiscuity, uh, gory violence driven away, your internet with no more gossip and slander, your politics with no more hypocritical, abusive leaders. Imagine yourself with your deepest, darkest sins you can never seem to get rid of, separated from you as far as the east is from the west. And Jesus in between, holding that. When Jesus steps out of the shadows, this vision is guaranteed to come about. And this gives us hope to move forward in our efforts of driving these things out of our own hearts. There is an end date to our fight. Every step towards holiness you take matters because Christ is going to uphold those steps. He's going to finish the work that we start. So this is Zechariah's vision of practical holiness. So my second challenge to you today, on top of practicing God's presence this holiday, is to let yourself imagine the future you long for. What do you really want in these hard areas of your life? Take time to think about that. Our desires uh, can be tainted and twisted at times. Uh, but likely, when you imagine what heaven would be like, there's a huge portion of actual heaven in there that you're actually longing for. So let that dream come to you this holiday and then let that dream motivate you because there's a man coming who's going to make the truest and best parts of that dream a reality and then work towards that dream we can all do that together towards shalom leaning on God's presence as we go knowing that we will fall short but only for a little while until Jesus steps out to finish what we started amen, amen.